The Daily 202's Big Idea is supported by Battelle. For 90 years, the employees of Battelle have solved the world's most challenging problems, finding solutions and really big ideas. At Battelle, it can be done. Learn more at battelle.org 90. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, September 11th. In today's news, Republicans win a special congressional election in North Carolina. The California Senate advances a ride-sharing bill that has divided Democrats over the future of work. And one of the CIA's best assets has been living in plain sight in the D.C. suburbs. Now he and his family are in hiding. But first, the big idea. Over a turbulent 17 months, President Trump and National Security Advisor John Bolton had disagreed on a variety of issues, from North Korea to Venezuela to Iran. But Trump finally decided to remove his top security aide on Tuesday after a heated discussion in the Oval Office. It followed accusations by other officials in the administration that Bolton had leaked to the news media, tried to drag others into his battles with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo over Afghanistan, and promoted his own views rather than those of the president. Here's how it went down. Trump called Bolton to meet with him Monday afternoon as he prepared to leave for a campaign rally that night in North Carolina. After Trump made his frustrations known, Bolton offered to resign. Bolton later insisted that Trump said they would discuss it again more the next day. It was the last time he ever saw the president. On Tuesday morning, Bolton handed a two-sentence letter to an aide for delivery to Trump, and then he left the building. All the letter said is basically, I hereby resign. There was nothing about spending more time with his family, no praise, no well wishes, anything like that. But then, just before noon, Trump stole Bolton's thunder, announcing in a terse tweet that he had fired his third national security advisor in a row. At the White House, those outside the inner sanctum were stunned when Trump's tweet appeared, at the Pentagon, there were cheers. When Pompeo appeared at an unrelated news briefing shortly after Trump's tweet, he rebuffed frantic questions about Bolton, saying he wouldn't talk about the administration's inner workings. Then, Pompeo smiled. Someone close to Pompeo says, quote, that smile spoke for itself. Among accumulated grievances that had been building for months, the president was annoyed that Bolton would regularly call members of Congress to try to get them to push Bolton-preferred policies on Trump. Many on Bolton's hand-picked staff were seen as unnecessarily confrontational with other parts of the national security bureaucracy. My colleagues Karen DeYoung, Josh Dossie, and John Hudson report that Vice President Pence and Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney found Bolton increasingly abrasive and self-promoting. Pompeo and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin had told Trump in one-on-one -on -one conversations that Bolton was out of control and not helping him. Another flashpoint was when Bolton refused the past two weekends to go on television to defend the president's policies on Afghanistan and Russia. That led the president to conclude that Bolton wasn't loyal, that he wasn't on the team. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Republican Dan Bishop pulled out a narrow win last night in a special election in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. In a district Trump carried by 12 points in 2016, Bishop prevailed by two points over Democrat Dan McCready. 
McCready had been running nonstop for two years, and the do-over election was called after credible allegations of ballot fraud against McCready's initial GOP opponent in last year's midterms. Bishop benefited from the president and Vice President Pence coming down to stump for him on the eve of the election. McCready won solid margins in affluent neighborhoods outside Charlotte and the suburbs immediately south and east of the Queen City. But he lost ground compared to his November showing in rural counties east of the city. We're seeing this pattern play out across the election. It's part of the continuing national realignment that Trump is accelerating. It indicates a deepening divide between conservative rural voters and suburban voters who have increasingly flocked toward Democrats. When you drill down into the county-by-county numbers, they show that while the suburbs might not be warming to Trump, rural conservatives are more loyal than ever. Spending on this small house race approached $20 million, making it one of the most expensive special elections in U.S. history. Trump is taking some credit for the GOP win on Twitter. He says that their internal polling showed Bishop down 17 points just three weeks ago. The president says the Republican base got excited when he got involved. He says that'll happen again next November when he's on the ballot. Number two. The California State Senate passed a controversial ride-sharing bill in the wee hours of the morning today that has divided liberals and more corporate-minded establishment Democrats. At issue is the bill AB5, which would convert hundreds of thousands of contract workers in the Golden State to employee status. That would institute wage floors and usher in paid benefits. This has pitted a host of former senior officials in Barack Obama's administration who have joined these companies against a younger generation of progressives who see a mandate to address economic inequality head-on, but also to advocate for workers in the so-called gig economy. California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's long been regarded as a business-friendly pragmatist, surprised some, including executives at Uber and Lyft who donated his campaign last year, by forcefully backing employment for these rideshare drivers. Uber and Lyft are fighting tooth and nail against this. They're planning to spend $90 million on a ballot initiative in November 2020 to overturn the law, assuming it goes into effect. Joe Biden's campaign has repeatedly refused to stake out a position, but basically every other Democrat has spoken out publicly in favor of the California law, including Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, who led a protest outside of Uber's headquarters, and Julian Castro. That puts them at odds with, among others, former Obama senior advisor Valerie Jarrett, who sits on Lyft's board of directors. The tension between these two sides bubbled over recently when Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a member of the squad, scolded former Senator Barbara Boxer on Twitter. Boxer now serves as a hired gun for Lyft and has been fighting against the California bill. In related news, Uber announced yesterday that it has laid off 435 workers in its product and engineering teams as the company struggles to become profitable. Number three, the former Russian government official, thought by many to have spied for the United States until being exfiltrated in 2017, has been hiding in plain sight, living in a suburban neighborhood about an hour outside of Washington. The Russian media reported yesterday that Oleg Smolenkov, whom it described as a missing employee of the Russian presidential administration, has been spotted in the United States. The paper reported that Smolenkov disappeared in 2017 during a family vacation to Montenegro and suggested that he may have been the American agent who was spirited out of the country after providing information 
about Vladimir Putin and the country's campaign to interfere in the 2016 U.S. election. Now, it's highly unusual for a country to name a possible turncoat. It's even more unusual for a suspected spy and defector to be living abroad using his own name. Public records show two addresses for an Oleg Smolenikov. One is a six-bedroom house on three acres in Stafford, Virginia. The other is the Russian embassy in northwest Washington. A neighbor who lives across the street from the Smolenkovs said the family had moved into the neighborhood earlier this year. It's about a million-dollar home. He said Smolenkov, his wife, and three children left on Monday evening and hadn't returned since. When one of our reporters went to the house yesterday, it appeared unoccupied, saved for two dogs who were on the premises. The family seems to have left in quite a hurry. Behind the house, toys and clothing were strewn about the yard. A woman's sweatshirt lay draped over a patio chair. A full ashtray and two lighters were on the patio table. One neighbor says that Smolenkov didn't have a job. After moving in earlier this year, he told this person that he looked forward to tending the house's ample lawn and gardens. He apparently said that he now had a lot of time on his hands. One former senior CIA official says the agency discourages defectors from using their real names or living anywhere near the nation's capital, where Russian intelligence services have an extensive presence, to put it mildly. In most cases, this former official says you come up with a completely new identity and you get the guy out to Colorado or somewhere like that. Speaking in Moscow today, Vladimir Putin delivered a stark warning to people like Smolenkov, saying, quote, traitors must be punished. Former director of defector resettlement operations at CIA, Joe Augustin, says that the U.S. government is well aware of these risks, and certainly they have 24-7 security on the defector and his family. Putin is revengeful, he says, but America protects its assets. Finally, on this tragic anniversary, let's take a brief moment to remember the 2,977 people who were senselessly murdered 18 years ago this morning in New York, at the Pentagon, and in a field in Pennsylvania. We will never forget them. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.